Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show. This was a Boomer Boulevard show originally broadcast back on the 1st of July in 2019. We hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Let's go. We're back. We're back. Chester's back. I'm back. And vacations are over, and it's hotter than heck in St. Louis and probably where you are, too. But it's still, it's good to be home. It's cool inside, right, Chester? Yeah. <laughs> the air conditioning's not enough. You have to have the fan with the big block of ice there. Looks like something out of a 1940 movie. Well, you're cool. All right. This is Bob Rowe, and I'm so happy to invite you back to Boomer Boulevard. This is the Old Time Radio podcast where we do play old time radio programs we actually remember from when we were kids. And tonight we have a great lineup. We have an episode of a show that we've never played before on Boomer Boulevard, and you're really going to love it. And this is a good episode. It's entitled Defense Attorney. That's the name of the program, and it featured Mercedes McCambridge. And she was such a great actress. We'll talk a little bit about her. We're going to follow that up with an episode of uh, Father Knows Best. It's a funny one with uh, Robert Young. We'll talk a little bit about him. And then we're going to end up with an episode of Gunsmoke that was just an outstanding early episode in the series. Very dramatic, very suspenseful, very tense. So we've got them all lined up. Chester has got his thumb ready to Press the button to get him started, and he's going to do that in just a minute. Do you remember that music? Oh, yeah. That's the theme from the 
Perry Mason television show. Perry Mason was on radio, too. In fact, many of the legal shows that uh, became very popular on television had their genesis in radio. Legal thrillers were, were very popular in the uh, 40s and uh, particularly in the early 50s. Um, perhaps the most popular of all the radio legal shows was the show called Mr. District Attorney. It ran for a number of years and was uh, by far and away the most popular of all the shows. But as it was signaling its, uh, its end, ABC started thinking about uh, possibly adding a new legal show to their lineup. But first of all, it was NBC that ordered an audition tape for the show that we're about to hear. They originally were going to name it The Defense Rests, and they had in mind Oscar winner Mercedes McCambridge for the role as the lead defense attorney. The audition was recorded in April of 1951. Well, NBC had apparently green-lighted the proposed uh, program But in mid-June of that year, ABC seemed to somehow come in and take over that project, and they renamed it simply Defense Attorney. The show was written by Cameron Blake, it was directed by Dwight Hauser, and it starred, as we said earlier, Mercedes McCambridge as Martha Ellis Marty Barrett, a respected attorney with a reputation for integrity who champions causes of the underdog and the unjustly accused. Her boyfriend was a newspaper reporter by the name of Judge Barnes. Let's try that again, Judd Barnes. And he was played by Howard Culver. One reviewer, in fact, noted that Marty often spent more time solving crimes with her boyfriend than she did defending her clients in the courtroom. Well, maybe so. This was a really good show. There was about, it's estimated as many as 75 original episodes that were broadcast on ABC, but unfortunately only 12 or 13 remain in circulation. I have 12 in my collection. I haven't found that 13th episode yet. And it's really too bad because this was a classic show. Mercedes McCambridge was one of the great radio actresses, and we'll talk a little bit about more about her on the other side. So now we're going back to August 28, 1952, for Defense Attorney, starring Mercedes McCambridge, And the name of this episode is The Case of George Bauman. Here it comes. Ladies and gentlemen, to depend upon your judgment and to fulfill my own obligation, I submit the facts. Fully aware of my responsibility to my client and to you as defense attorney. And now, transcribed, we proudly present Miss Mercedes McCambridge as defense attorney. When Martha Ellis Bryant chose law as a career, she accepted the challenge of defending the defenseless. George Bauman was one of the defenseless, a bartender who was hardworking and pleasant until his wife's past, another man's memory, and a million-to-one chance combined to threaten him with conviction for murder. 
Your Honor, I submit that it was possible for George Bauman to forget the face he saw only once. I maintain that George Bauman shot and killed Louis Arpet in defense of himself and his property, and that in no way did the emotion of jealousy play any part in the killing. And I ask that you find George Bauman not guilty. <laughs> The chance of a meteor killing a human being is infinitely small, but it has happened. George Bauman killed a man and found later that just so great a chance had crossed their paths before. Yes, George Bauman was one of the defenseless, the victim of chance, a chance that could happen to anyone. Now, George Bauman sits in a cell of the county jail and confesses to killing a man, but he maintains his innocence of the crime of murder. You say that you killed this man in order to protect the money which was entrusted to your safekeeping. Well, sure. He, he threatened me. He told me to give him the cash or he'd shoot me. Do you know anything more about why the police are holding you here? No. All I know about why I'm here is that well, the man didn't have a gun like he said he did. Yes, but you thought he had a gun. Well, sure. He had his hand in his pocket and he said he had a gun. But you didn't see a gun? No. Were there any other witnesses? Some customers sitting at the bar. Did anybody else see a gun? Well, I don't know. Did anybody else hear this man threaten you? I don't know that either. He's talking kind of low and threatening. Yes, like... maybe you'd better begin at the beginning and tell me all that you can about exactly what happened. Oh, it's sure. I remember it all pretty well. It wasn't a very busy night. I was tending bar as usual. There's only a couple of men in the bar. Down towards the end. I just going down there. Ah, how you doing, fellas? Ready for another one? No, I got plenty right now. We're going home after this one, so I guess you can't sell us anymore, George. <laughs> it's all right with me. I feel like taking it easy anyhow. You're the one about the elephant who couldn't remember where his trunk was? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hiya. I'll be with you as soon as I wipe my hands. Yeah. All right, what do you have? I got a lug in my pocket. It's all ready to go off. Hmm? You heard me, bud. I got a gun in my pocket. Do like I say or I'll blow your head off. Well, what do you want? Money, mister. What else? Take all the bills out of the register, wrap them up in one of those paper napkins, and shove them across the bar. Uh, yeah, okay. And don't forget, mister. I'd as soon plug you as not. Hey, hey, hey. Where did hey, you what get? What did you do? He was trying to stick me up, but I got the gun out of the cash drawer. Wait a minute. Watch out, fellas. He's got a gun. Uh, he ain't gonna hurt nobody. He's dead. Then when the cops came, they looked this guy over, and he didn't have a gun on him at all. The cops talked to Bert and Joe and then said they'd have to hold me and check up on me. I feel terrible about shooting a man that didn't even have a gun, Miss Bryant. You can hardly be blamed for defending yourself and the property entrusted to you. And the fact that you called a bluff can't be held against you. They got me in jail, haven't they? Yes, Mr. Bauman, but I think they'll be forced to release you once they've checked your story. Marty. Hey, Marty. Hi, Judd, darling. What are you doing here? I just dropped in to see Ed Letus. Got quite a story. New slant on a client of yours. Oh, what? Well, it seems that the dead Louis Arpet was once divorced from a Bertha Green. Who's she? 
Bertha has been married to your client, George Bauman, for the last 15 years. She's been what? It's simple. Bauman was jealous of the man he shot. Oh, Judd. I think that will sound like murder to the D.A. Bauman didn't tell me any of that. Judd, I'd have sworn he was telling the truth. Well, maybe he just wasn't telling the whole truth. You've got to believe me, Miss Bryant. I I didn't know until you just now told me that it was Louis Arpet I killed. I, I only saw him once, right after Bertha and me was married. And what happened then? Well, he, he just came around to bum money from Bertha. I told him to leave and he went. That, that's all honest. And you haven't seen him, not even a picture of him since? No, no, not even a picture. I couldn't describe him if you'd offer me a million dollars. All right. I believe you, George. And I'm going to do my best to help you. But circumstances against you. And I know District Attorney Sam Clark well enough to know that he'll prosecute this case as murder and use jealousy as a motive. But I haven't seen Louis R. Pitt since right after Bertha and me was married. You can ask Bertha. She'll tell you yes, this. Yes, I will. And until your case comes up, don't you answer any questions for the police unless I'm here to guide your answers. Yeah, all right. Well, could I call Bertha? I'd like to talk to her. Yes, George. I'll tell the sergeant on the way out. Well, thanks, Miss Bryant. <laughs> Hey, Marty, over here at the curb. Yes, darling. Would you give a working girl a lift out to 1722 Elm Drive? Sure, I'd love to. Did I keep you waiting very long? <laughs> Only half an hour in a no-parking zone in front of police headquarters, that's all. Hop uh, in. Maybe the press card in your window kept you from getting a ticket. No, they just know I have an in with a good lawyer. Reporters should be considered automatically guilty, and me, I'm lazy. I like to defend the innocent. Oh, then you'll drop the guilty George Bauman? going to be a murder charge now, you know. How did you find out so fast? The report just came into Lieutenant Leader's office. Now, easy, Counselor. Don't forget, I've got printer's ink in my veins. Now, how about your story of the Arpet murder? In the first place, it wasn't murder. It was justifiable homicide. Oh, no. The country's most beautiful attorney is also the most soft-hearted. Mm. So, Bauman tells you that he didn't recognize the man he killed, and you believe him, right? Yes, I believe him. And if you start coloring this up as a murder in your paper, I'll sue both you and your publisher. Good, good. If you win, we can get married on the proceeds. Oh, oh, oh. here's the address. Yeah, yeah, okay, Counselor. Right. Shall I wait for you? You bet. And buy lunch. Bye. Yes? Mrs. Bauman, I'm Martha Ellis Bryant. I'm your husband's attorney. Oh, yes. Please come in, Miss Bryant. Thank you. I hope you'll excuse the way the apartment looks, but I just haven't felt like doing anything. I understand, Mrs. Bowman. I didn't sleep all night. Then George just called me and told me the man he... The man who was killed was Louis. Yes, I know it must be quite a shock to you, but I thought maybe if we could talk, we could clear up a few things. I'll tell you anything that will help, George. I just can't believe this thing has really happened. It's like Louis come back to haunt us. We haven't seen him for almost 15 years. And then this happened. Are you sure that your husband hasn't seen Louis for all these years? I know he hasn't. He would have mentioned it if he had. My first marriage was one of the few things George and I ever argued about. Do you mean that after 15 years you still had arguments about your first husband? I, I, I know it sounds like George is a jealous man, but it really isn't like that at all. But you did argue about Louis Arpet. Yes, but not about Louis as a man. Well, it's hard to explain. 
You see, my marriage to George started off all wrong. What do you mean? Well, I didn't tell him I'd been married before. I know now it was a mistake. I didn't want anything to spoil our happiness. But your husband found out. Yes. Louis had been coming around when George was at work. He'd want a couple of dollars or so. Kept saying he'd tell George about our marriage. So you kept on giving him money? Yes, and then one night George was at home when Louis came around. He answered the door and Louis told him who he was. I tried to tell George it wasn't true, but it was too late. And what did George do? Oh, I can't remember the exact words. He told Louis to get out, to stay away from us. That's about all I can remember. Did George threaten Louis Arpet at that time? No. No, he just told him to go to stay away from us. He didn't say anything else. So far as you know, that was the last time George saw Louis. Yes, Miss Bryant. Mrs. Bowman, I'm going to defend your husband, because I believe you. The case against him is built on circumstance. It's not going to be easy to prove that your husband didn't murder Louis, our pet, because of jealousy. But on the other hand, it won't be easy to prove that he did. You believe George, and I believe him, but what can we do? We can do our best to make sure that 12 other people believe him. Martha, do you mean to sit there and tell me that you believe that Louis Arpet walked into that bar and tried to hold up the bartender without knowing that it was George Bauman, the man who married his ex-wife? Sam, the element of chance lies in their having known each other, not in the aiming of the bullet. I thought you denied that they knew each other. I wish you'd stop trying to trap me out of court, Sam. I said that George Bauman met Arpet only once. I also said that in the 15 years between meetings, it would be hard to remember what our pet looked like. Mm, jealousy can be a good memory stimulus. If Bauman was jealous, he was jealous of the condition of Bertha's having been married before. It was the condition, Sam. It was not the man our pet. You can't shoot a condition. You can shoot a man. And the best man to shoot is one who isn't carrying a gun. But George thought he was carrying a gun. I don't believe it. And I'm going to see to it that a jury doesn't believe it. There's just too much circumstance in this case to have it anything but murder. Premeditated murder at that. Sam, you're trying to hang an innocent man. Martha, I remember people I met 15 years ago. People who made an impression on me. All right, Sam. You bring your memory to court because I intend to make this case one that you'd like to forget. Okay, Judson, let's go. How did it go with Sam Clark? Uh-oh. See by your face how it went. Not good. Sam was his usual vigilant self. But I got an idea. That's nothing new, but it sounds like work for me, the way you say it. It is, darling. Sam hasn't always been a DA. About 15 years ago, he was going to law school. And if we could just check... Check to see if he cribbed on his bar exam? Oh, darling, be serious. If we can find out enough about Sam Clark's past associations... He may be the one to free George Bauman once we get him in court. Marty, Sam is the D.A. He isn't on trial. He may be before this case is closed. Joel Potter, take the stand, please. You 
Marty, the man you wanted me to find for you is in the first row there. Where, Judd? The dignified-looking man with the gray mustache. His name is R. Fenley Baker. Thank you, darling. I knew you could do it if anybody could. Don't thank me. You don't know it, but you're paying his round-trip plane fare. I got a feeling it'll be worth it. State your name, please. Uh, Joe Potter. Here goes Sam. Full thank you, Mr. Potter. Now, will you tell us in your own words what happened in the bar as you saw it? The night that Louis Arpet was murdered. Objection, Your Honor. The question assumes a fact not in evidence. I move that the word murdered be struck from the question. I suggest that the question read, the night that Louis Arpet was killed during his attempted robbery. The move to strike the word murdered is sustained. The suggested wording by the counsel for the defense is overruled. And I must warn the counsel against such counterattempts at coloring the record. Mr. Reporter, the substituted word will be killed. Jury will disregard the murder term. The witness will proceed. Uh, well, me and Bert, that's Bert Fraser, he's sitting right over there. Yes, go ahead. Me and Bert come in the bar from a union meeting, and, well, we got a beer at the bar. You were standing at the bar then? Yeah, yeah, down towards the end, and, and this guy that uh, got shot came in, he says something to George, kind of quiet-like. George frowns, and then he turns around and opens a cash register and pulls the gun out and shoots this guy twice. Watching closely. Well, yeah... Bert was telling a joke that I heard before, so I was kind of looking around the bar. Did Louis Arpet make any threatening gestures that you noticed? Threatening? No, no, he, he just stood there. Is this... Is this a picture of the man who was killed? Yeah, yeah, that's him. Thank you, Mr. Potter. Your witness, counsel. No questions. No questions? Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury... You have heard both Joe Potter and Bert Frazier testify that George Bauman shot Louis Arpet without provocation. Your witness, counsel. No cross-examination. Hope you know what you're doing, darling. Sam is building a heavy foundation. Judge, you're more worried than George is. Isn't that right, George? Well, it doesn't sound too good to me, Miss Bryant. But you've got to tell them I didn't know who he was. I, I didn't just shoot him because I was mad at him. I believe you, George. You've got to trust me. Your Honor, with his last witness, the state concludes its introduction of evidence. Very well. The defense will proceed with the case. Thank you, Your Honor. Ladies and gentlemen, since the defense of this case has been somewhat irregular, I believe I owe you an explanation. I did not cross-examine the witnesses brought forth by the prosecution, the men who witnessed the killing, because it was all too obvious that Louis Arpet would make every effort to keep casual observers from knowing he was robbing the defendant, George Bauman. He was undoubtedly extra cautious since he was not carrying a gun. You have also heard evidence that George and Bertha Bauman had quarreled, and even though Louis Arpet may have been the subject of some of these quarrels, is it not probable that Mr. Bauman has long since ceased to be actively jealous of this man he met only once? Fifteen years ago? Your Honor, the prosecution objects to the attempt by the defense to change the connotation of the testimony of the witnesses. Objection overruled. Proceed to the defense. Which brings us to the question around which this case revolves. Could George Bauman fail to recognize Louis Arpet? I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, how many times have you been stopped by someone on the street or in a store and had that person call you by name and you exchange pleasantries with him? And when you part company, you cannot recall his name or exactly where you met him. Now, with this in mind, I call my first witness, the defendant, George Bauman. Mr. George Bauman will take the stand. Can you sound the swell to tell the truth? 
I do. Mr. Bobbin, I know that you are an honest man. And I have every confidence that your honesty will show through to the ladies and the gentlemen of the jury, in spite of the obvious efforts to make you appear otherwise. I also understand your feeling of remorse at having had to kill a man who threatened your own life. And the defense, therefore, will ask you just two questions. First, did you shoot Louis Arpet because of jealousy? No, I didn't. Second, when Louis Arpet came into the bar before or after you shot him, did you recognize him as the man who had been married to your wife? No. Thank you, Mr. Bauman. Your witness, George Bauman. Why did you kill the defenseless Louis Arpet? Well, I, well, he was aiming a gun at me. Gun? That's strange. No one else saw the gun, and the police couldn't find in his pockets a weapon any more deadly than a streetcar token. No, no, he, he had the gun in his pocket, or I thought he did. He said that yes, he had the gun. Yes, yes, we understand. You shot and killed this man because you thought he might have a gun in his pocket. Yes. Didn't it occur to you as odd when you fabricated this story that a man who was attempting armed robbery wouldn't carry a gun? Objection. The implication that the defendant lied is leading and confusing. Sustain. Very well, Your Honor. We will abandon that question. Mr. Bauman, you realize, of course, that there are thousands of bars in the United States of America. These bars are frequented by millions of customers. Do you presume to assault the credulity of the court and jury with the idea that of all these bars, the man who has been the object of your wrath for 15 years walked into the very bar where you work at the very time you were on duty to rob you without a gun? Do you wish to insult the intelligence of every man and woman listening by expecting them to believe that? Well, yes. Furthermore, and far more important, how did you expect your supposed faulty memory to help you? Did you want us to swallow your story of not remembering what Louis Arpet looked like? Is it conceivable? that you can suddenly forget the man about whom you have been shouting in absentia for 15 years. Yes, it's true, it's true. That is all. You may step down. Well, here goes, Judge. I think we're ready for him. Good luck, honey. Thank you. The defense requests permission of the court to introduce at this time a special exhibit. Introduction of exhibits is proper procedure. There is no need to request special permission. Thank you, Your Honor. I sincerely hope you hold the same opinion after seeing the exhibit. Would the distinguished gentleman in the first row approach the bench, please? Certainly. Your Honor, I introduce Exhibit A for the defense. Uh, Miss Bryant, do you mean to say you intend using a, a, a person as an exhibit? If it please the court, I do. This is highly irregular. If this gentleman has anything to do with this case, he should be placed upon the stand as a witness where he can be properly questioned. I do not intend to question the exhibit, Your Honor. I only wish to question others involved in this case regarding the exhibit. Miss Bryant, Miss Bryant, I do not quite understand how it is that whenever you come before this bench, you manage to depart so completely from regular procedure. However, in this matter, the bench will recognize your request until at least we can find out what your intentions are. Strictly honorable, Your Honor. Yeah. Proceed then, please. But I warn you, Miss Bryant, unless your conduct shows this stunt to have bearing on this case, the entire procedure will be ordered stricken from the record. Thank you, Your Honor. First, I would ask Your Honor a question. What is it? 
Do you recognize this gentleman, Your Honor? Should I? No. No, I never saw him before in my life. Then I would ask the witness, Joe Potter. Do you know this man? Uh, no. Perhaps the defendant himself, Mr. George Bauman, can shed some light on the matter. George? Do you recognize this man? No, I don't. Uh, Your Honor, I object to this fantastic behavior. Miss Bryant has now established the fact that no one connected with this case knows this person whom she chooses to introduce here as an exhibit. Since she is merely attempting to establish who does not know the exhibit, I object on the grounds that it is a waste of time. I imagine there are a hundred million people in the United States who do not know this man. Objection is overruled. Perhaps you can assist us, Mr. Clark. Do you know this man? What? what why, certainly not. Your Honor, the defense has now established that the exhibit is a complete stranger to everyone in this courtroom. Perhaps she will now request a 15-year recess while we test her ability to remember the assembled crowd. Order! Order! Your Honor, I call as next witness for the defense the gentleman previously introduced as Exhibit A, Mr. R. Fenley Baker. Mr. Baker, take the stand, please. Mr. Baker, the prosecuting attorney states that you are a complete stranger to everyone in this courtroom. I do not believe that is true. Do you know anybody here? Yes. Who is the person you recognize? I recognize the prosecuting attorney, Sam Clark. Why, what is Where this? Where did you know him? In college. How long ago was that? About uh, 15 years ago. Under what conditions did you meet? I object, Your Honor. Under rule. Proceed, please. I would say the conditions were violent. I was head of the committee that initiated Sam Clark into the fraternity. I'm afraid I was a little overzealous in administering the paddle to him, for after that he was known as uh, Singin' Sammy Clark. Your Honor, I object. These are cheap theatricals in a court of law. Order. Order in this courtroom. Objection overruled. Proceed, Counselor. Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen, I feel that we have proven it is possible for a man to forget... Even our able and intelligent prosecuting attorney who did not recognize a fraternity brother. The prosecution has dealt rather heavily on the proposition that George Bauman could not have forgotten a man he saw only once 15 years ago. Yet Sam Clark can forget a man who 15 years ago was his fraternity brother. People change in 15 years. I do not believe Sam Clark did recognize Mr. Baker. But if it is possible for him to forget such a well-known acquaintance, I submit that it was possible for George Bauman to forget a face he saw only once. I maintain that George Bauman shot and killed Louis Arpet in defense of himself and his property, and that in no way did the emotion of jealousy play any part in the killing. And I ask that you find George Bauman not guilty. George Barman, since the jury finds you not guilty due to the act with which you were charged being declared justifiable homicide, I release you from custody. Court adjourned. 
Oh, I... I don't know how to thank you, Miss Bryant. I'm so I'll do the thanking it. for you, George. Oh. Maybe I can talk her into coming in for a drink sometime. Hey, any time. They're on the house any time. See there, Marty? Now, if you can defend a grocer and a light and power company and a real estate agent, we can get married and live for practically nothing. Judd, <laughs> Judd, if you marry her, you're insane. How would you ever win an argument? Ah, that's easy. I'll buy a gavel. You ever notice how the judge manages to get in the last word? <laughs> I should have thought of that. Oh, oh, excuse me. There goes Baker. I want to take him out to meet the wife. The one thing you've got to say for Sam, he's a good loser. Yeah, I was watching him. Marty, I do think you're a little tough on old Sam. I don't know. A couple of people in court who wouldn't agree with you. Name one. The defendant, George Palmer. You have just heard Defense Attorney, starring Mercedes McCambridge, with Howard Culver as Judd. Tonight you heard Bill Boucher as George Bauman, Jan Arvan as the District Attorney, Mary Lansing as Mrs. Bauman, Peter Leeds as R. Fenley Baker, and Parley Bear as the Judge. Music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Defense Attorney was written by Rick McClune and William Yeager. The program is directed by Dwight Hauser. Next week, another exciting transcribed adventure with Mercedes McCambridge, Defense Attorney. Be sure to listen. This is Orville Anderson inviting you to stay tuned for the original Amateur Hour with Ted Mack, the man who gives so many youngsters their start to stardom. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is the American Broadcasting Company. That was Defense Attorney. That was first broadcast on ABC on the 28th of August in 1952. The name of that episode was the case of George Bauman. And, of course, it featured Howard Culver and Mercedes McCambridge. I noticed Parley Bear in there as the judge. Just looking at Ron Lackman's book, The Encyclopedia of American Radio, he talks about Mercedes McCambridge. I just kind of just paraphrase some of this. She was an award-winning Academy Award actress. Uh, she was born in Joliet, Illinois, began acting while still in her teens as an NBC contract radio actress in Chicago. That was in the late 30s. An NBC executive thought that her voice was unusual and that it was perfect for radio. Over the years, she regularly was heard on shows like Lights Out, Inner Sanctum, uh, Studio One, The Ford Theater, I Love a Mystery. We, we know her from I Love a Mystery. In fact, Carlton Morris used her a lot. The CBS Mystery Theater, Murder at Midnight, One Man's Family, The Adventures of Dick Tracy. Oh, man, I could go on and on. She was in a lot of radio programs. During her long and distinguished career on radio, no less an authority than Orson Welles called Mercedes McCambridge the world's greatest radio actress. She was also seen on television. She was seen in several dramatic anthology series, such as Studio One and the Craft Theater. In 1949, McCambridge received the Academy Award 
for Best Supporting Actress in the film All the King's Men. Remember that with Broderick Crawford? And she was nominated a second time in 1956 for the film Giant. I don't remember her in that. I'd have to go back and see Giant again. I have not probably seen that for 40 years. Mercedes McCambridge, quite an actress, and will feature more things. In fact, I'm going to try to specifically uh, feature more things with her in future shows. Man, winter be half a day. 
That was Jewel with a song that she wrote for the motion picture Ride with the Devil. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> well, every baby boomer remembers Father Knows Best, especially from television, but it was on radio for many years. And that's what we're going to listen to this week on the Comedy Corner. We're going back to September the 11th, 1952. And the Anderson household is watching the dog. That's the name of this episode. Here it comes. Mother, why did Daddy switch to Postum? Your father says there's no caffeine in Postum. Nothing to spoil your sleep. And your father knows best. It's Father Knows Best, transcribed in Hollywood, starring Robert Young as Father. A half-hour visit with your neighbors, the Andersons. Brought to you by Instant Postum, the good-tasting drink that's entirely caffeine-free, and by Post's 40% Bran Flakes, America's largest-selling Bran Flakes. Every dog, according to Jonathan Swift, must have his day. But not many dogs get to have their day with the Andersons in the white frame house on Maple Street. However, a certain French poodle is about to come into the lives of the Andersons. Like this. Mother, I got it, Mother. Got what, Betty? Look, Father, isn't it cute? (laughs) Yes, it's cute. But what is it? It's a dog. That's a dog? It's a toy French poodle, and it... Oh, boy, we got a dog. Get away, infant. Don't start mauling him. I'm not going to maul him. I just want to pet him. Well, don't even touch him. He belongs to Mr. Fawcett, and he's worth over $300. I just want to put my hand on him. I'm not going to break him. I don't know. From the look of him, he might break it that. Get away, Kathy. Oh, for Pete's sake. Why couldn't we get some little old 50-cent dog? He's not ours. Betty, you know who always winds up taking care of the pets you children bring home. Mother, please, may I tell you why this dog is here? Yes, I'd like an explanation, too. And an introduction. This is the first opportunity I've had to meet a $300 dog. Well, his name is... I don't suppose I'm properly dressed for the occasion. Maybe I should go upstairs and change Oh, Father, don't be so utterly cornball. (laughs) Well, I don't want to commit any breaches of etiquette in front of our guest. What did you say his name was? Pierre. Oh. Bonsoir, Pierre. (laughs) He doesn't think much of your accent. 
Well, now that the formalities are over, to what do we owe the presence of this imitation hound? He's not imitation. He belongs to my typing and shorthand teacher, Mr. Fawcett. And Mr. Fawcett is in Chicago attending a teacher's convention. You mean we don't get to keep him? No. How can a typing teacher afford a $300 dog? I know I couldn't. He was given to Mr. Fawcett by a dear friend, and Mr. Fawcett prizes Pierre very highly. How long do we get to have him? Just till tomorrow morning. Oh, heck. Mr. Fawcett gets back tomorrow. Sounds like a short convention. Oh, well, he's been gone all week. You see, some of us girls in his class have been taking care of Pierre. I see. Pierre's making quite a week of it. Well, we figured it would sort of put us in solid with Mr. Fawcett. Oh, so this is a slightly political move, huh? Yes, and listen to this, Father. There were four of us, and Mr. Fawcett was going to be gone seven days. So, in dividing up the days, one of us could only have Pierre one day. And I'll bet you think I was dumb to say I'd be the one. No, I say you showed great foresight there. Well, I did. I'm the one who gets to return Pierre to Mr. Fawcett. And he'll thank me and sort of remember me as the one who took care of his dog, which he prizes more than life itself. Now, if you just put that much thought to your schoolwork, you wouldn't have to resort to such maneuvers. <laughs> Let me take him out to the kitchen and feed him some bones and stuff. He looks skinny. He's supposed to look that way, and don't feed him. Pierre is on a strict diet. Where's the dog going to sleep tonight? Can he sleep on the foot of my bed? You'll probably want the guest room. Oh, Father. Too bad we don't have one. Hey, Mom. Let me feed him, please. No, I'm going to do it. Mr. Fawcett would simply die if anything happened to Pierre. Say, Mom. And so would I. Hey, Mom, guess what I got? I hope it's not a dog. No, it's a carrier pigeon. What? (laughs) What are we running here, a pet shop? I got it from... Hey, what's this thing? This happens to be a dog. D-O-G, dog. Ever hear of one? Holy cow, what happened to him? Oh, keep quiet. Looks like somebody ran over him with a lawnmower. He's just been clipped. I'm keeping him for Mr. Fawcett. Has he got a name? It's Pierre. Pierre? Yipe! All right. Come on, Pierre. We don't have to associate with such utter plebeians. What did she call me? (laughs) Nothing to worry about, Bud. Just leave her alone. Where's your pigeon, Bud? Can I see it? No, you stay away from it. You're liable to let it get loose. Aw, heck. I can't touch anything around here. Bud, just what do you plan to do with a carrier pigeon? I got it from Ari Pugh. (laughs) Well, that ought to explain something. But who's Ori Pugh? He's a guy. Oh, I see. Will he really carry messages? Well, sure he will. We've been trying him out this evening. Oh, boy. Can I send a message to Patty Davis? No. Why not? The only place he'll carry a message is back over to Ori's house. But I can't think of any messages I want to send to Ori. I can see how that would foul up your communication system. The main reason I got the pigeon is so I could print up some messages with that printing set of mine. But that's not working out so good either. What seems to be the drawback there? Well, to get the pigeon, I had to trade the printing set to Ori. 
Well, that was good, clear thinking. I think I'll tell him I want to trade back. Hey, there's a message I could send him. Are you going to send it right now? Yep. Can I watch? Okay, but don't give me any trouble. Oh, I won't, honest. Oh, you wonder what in the world they'll come up with next. <laughs> well, at least that one-way carrier pigeon was acquired legally. But I'm a little surprised that Betty would stoop to taking care of a silly dog, just a red apple, a teacher. Now, don't start worrying about it, dear. I'm not worrying. I just said I was surprised. Doesn't it seem a little underhanded to you? Well, it all depends on how you look at it. No matter how you look at it, she's trying to butter up this Mr. Fosdick. Fawcett. Fawcett. All right, whatever his name is. Scheming to be the last one to keep the dog so she can return him. What an operation. Now, don't start building this up in your mind, dear. Who's building anything up? Here, Pierre. Hello, baby. What a dog. Looks like a marshmallow sundae. <laughs> With fur. Here, Pierre. Come here, Pierre. Here, doggy. Come on, little fella. Well, how do you like that? He passed me up. He's going right to you, dear. Well, hello there, Poochie. You're not so dumb after all, are you? Here, Pierre. He's in here, Betty. Oh, you want to come up in my lap, huh? Okay, up you go. What's he doing? He's talking to your father. Sure, you're a fine little fella. You know, these dogs have intelligent faces at that. There's something very honest about a dog. Where is he? Oh, well, be careful of him, Father. If anything happened to Pierre, it would be the end of my college career. Simply the end. You've made that point very clear, Princess. Hmm. Say, I believe he likes me. I wonder if it's true that dogs have an instinct for judging character. Oh, let me have him, Father. It's time for his dinner. Come on, Snooky Pooh. <laughs> Snooky Pooh. Oh. You know something, Margaret? What, dear? It'd serve Betty right if something did happen to Pierre. What? Oh, nothing permanent or painful, but. Uh... Mother, where did you put that box of special dog food I brought home? Down in the cupboard, beside the sink. Uh, where are you going to feed him, Princess? Out on the back porch. Better be sure he can't push the back door open. Dear, what are you... Never mind, honey. I was just thinking that... Uh... I didn't let him out, bud. I didn't say you did. Where do you think the pigeon's gone? I know where he's gone. He's gone back to Ari's. I gotta call him right away. What's the matter? Pigeon problems? Yeah, he's gone. Hello, Ari. This is Bud. Say, will you look outside and see if Vern's over there? Yeah. <laughs> Who's Vern? That's Bud's carrier pigeon. Fine name for a pigeon. Or he named him after his uncle. <laughs> the pigeon's uncle? No, Ori's. The one that used to be a Western Union messenger boy. <laughs> well, I can see the connection there. Oh, Mother, you ought to go out and watch Pierre eat. He actually has manners. I'll take your word for it, dear. Eating with a fork, is he? <laughs> I have to find something to make a bed for Pierre. Betty, you're sure he can't push that back door open? There's a spring on it. He can't push it open. Jim, why do you keep talking about the back door? Oh, nothing. What happened to Ori, bud? He lost, too? He's coming. 
Yeah, Ori. Oh, he is, huh? Well, bring him back over here because I want to send you a message. <laughs> well, if I tell you what the message is, then I won't have anything to send with a pigeon when you bring him over. This thing gets more complicated all the time. Well, okay, then. Here's the message. I want to trade the pigeon back to you for my printing set. You will? Okay. Goodbye. What did you tell him the message for? He's going to pin it up on the printing set and bring it over when he brings the pigeon. <laughs> then I'll send it back to him. Did he say he'd trade back? How could he tell that? He hasn't got the message yet. <laughs> well, now I've heard everything. If the pigeon ever finds out what's going on, he'll go south for the winter. <laughs> Excuse me, I think I'll wander out and see if Pierre is ready for his crepe Suzette. Mother, where's that old green blanket we used to have? Didn't you take it up to the lake last summer? I think I'll go out in front and watch for Ori. I'll go with you. It was on the upstairs porch the last time I saw it. What do you always have to tag along for, Shrimp? I can if I want to. I haven't seen it, dear. Holy cow. I wonder if it's in the basement. Pierre has to have something to sleep on. Well, it's around the house somewhere. Bud, have you seen it? He's out in front, dear. Bud! Margaret, did Betty go out the front door? What? Yes, why? <laughs> I didn't want her to see me come in. What have you been up to? I'm going to throw a little scare into Betty. When she goes out to the back porch for Pierre, he won't be there. What? I betted him down in the garage. I let her think he's lost for a while. Teach her a good lesson not to play school politics. Oh, Jim. Let her think she's going to have to replace that $300 dog. Let her wonder what she's going to tell Mr. Fawcett tomorrow. It'll serve her just right. Are you sure he's all right out there? Sure, the door's closed tight. He can't get out. I can hardly wait to see the expression on Betty's face. Is that you, Bud? It's me, Mother. Oh, did Bud know where the blanket was? No. Uh, Princess, hadn't you better see if Pierre's all right? He hasn't made a sound out there. I'll be down in a minute. Dear, do you think the garage is a very good place for it? Someone could come along No, and... he's perfectly safe. Say, Mom, Ari hasn't called, has he? No, we've been right here. He hasn't showed up with a pigeon yet. By the way, Bud, uh, kind of steer clear of the garage. I mean, don't open the door. Don't open the door? I just closed it. What? <laughs> Yeah, it was open. Oh, no. Where was the dog? I don't know. No dog out there. No dog? What's the matter, Dad? Out of the way! You'd better take a good look at your father, Bud. You may not see him for a long time. Well, there used to be a game called Button, Button, Who's Got the Button? This evening in the White Frame House on Maple Street, a variation on that game is being played. You might call it Strudel, Strudel, Who's Got the Poodle? <laughs> now, the one who is most frantically searching for a certain toy poodle named Pierre is Jim Anderson. Meanwhile in the kitchen, Bud is trying to catch up on the current crisis. Like this. Holy cow, Mom. What's wrong with Dad? Well, don't say anything about it, Bud. But your father put Pierre out in the garage. Now he's missing. 
Oh, that's why Dad went tearing out the back door. But what did he put him in the garage for? Oh, it's a long story. The point is, Pierre is gone, and your father has to find him before Betty finds out. Maybe a butterfly chased him. (laughs) Father! He's outside, Betty. I'm going to go out and see if I can help him. Poodles. What's the idea of standing in the middle of the kitchen with that dumb look on your face? I'm waiting for Ori. He's bringing the pigeon over. Where'd Mother go? Outside. Where's Father? Outside. I'll bet he's looking for Pierre, isn't he? Is he? Bud, don't you tell anybody, but I have Pierre up in my room. Huh? I heard Father talking out here. He hit him in the garage just to scare me. So I went out and brought Pierre in the front way. You better go out and tell him. Oh, no. Let him stew for a while. It'll teach him a lesson. Poor little Pierre out there in that dirty garage. Stop. You're breaking my heart. <laughs> oh. Oh, uh, I didn't know you were in here, Betty. I've been here all the time. Where's Father? Oh, um, he's outside, dear. Uh, weren't you planning to go out tonight? Me? Oh, no. I have to stay home and take care of Pierre. Where is he, Mother? Pierre? Oh, uh, he's outside somewhere. Outside? Oh, your father's out there, too. He's all right, I'm sure. I think I'll go outside, too. I gotta watch for Ori. Mother, what's father up to? Well, uh, you see, dear, he... Um... Margaret, have you... Oh, hello, princess. Father, where is Mr. Fawcett's $300 French poodle? Uh... Mr. French's three-poodle... I mean... Oh, he's all right. Uh, You don't think I'd let anything happen to him, do you? Oh, I'm not worried. I'm sure you know exactly where he is. And I'm perfectly confident that you're taking good care of him. Oh, sure. Well, you'd better go out and get him, Father. I'm going to put him to bed in a few minutes. Uh, all right, Princess. I think you'd better sit down, dear. You look a little shaky. Margaret, where do you suppose that darn dog went to? There's not a sign of him anywhere. Don't look at me. You're the one who's teaching Betty the lesson. I've got to find him. But where? Talk about looking for a needle in a haystack. That four-legged powder puff could hide under a peanut shell. (laughs) Of all the silly ideas, putting him in the garage in the first place. Who's that? Maybe it's Pierre. He seems to open and close doors pretty readily. Ori showed up with a pigeon, finally. Yeah. Bud sent the message back to Ori. Look, uh, Kathy, uh, Bud... I don't know if Ori will be there to get the message, though. He ran for home as fast as he could, but the pigeon was way ahead of him. (laughs) Why didn't you hold the pigeon and wait till Ori got home? The message was urgent. Oh, dear. Look, kids, I I have a very serious problem, and, and Bud, you and Kathy can help me. What's the matter, Daddy? Well, don't say anything to Betty, but Pierre, he got away somehow. I want you both to go out and comb the neighborhood. I'll go, Daddy. But, Dad, there's no use going out. We've got to find him, Bud. You kids know all the nooks and crannies around the neighborhood. He can't be very far away. I'll... I'll even give it a reward for him. Dead or alive? I'm serious, kitten. Uh, Five dollars in cash. Five dollars? Holy cow. Oh, boy. Come on, Bud. 
Bud, get your flashlight. Yeah, uh, but he's not a... Well, I mean... Okay, you can stand around if you want to. I'm going out and look for him. Anything to eat in the refrigerator, Mom? I'm hungry. Fine cooperation from my son. There's only one place to look for anything, as far as he's concerned. In the refrigerator. (laughs) Well, dear, you brought this on yourself. Why did Betty have to bring the fool dog home in the first place? And a $300 dog. He ought to be in a safe deposit box. I'm going to phone some of the neighbors. The Davises have a dog. Maybe he went over there. Where's the peanut butter, Mom? Right where it always is. I can't understand you, Bud. When your father asked you to go out... But the dog isn't outside anywhere. I mean, what's the How use do you of a... know he isn't outside? Well, I'm not supposed to say. Who said you're not? Well, uh... Bud, there's nothing that concerns the family that you can't tell me. But, gee, Mom, I... Bud, do you know where the dog is? Well, sort of. What do you mean, sort of? Is he in the house? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> He can't be kinda in the house. Pierre is either in or out. Now, where is he? Well, I wasn't supposed to say anything, but... You see, Betty's trying to teach Dad a lesson. She got the pooch out of the garage, and he's up in her room. Oh, I see. Well. Lines are all busy. What in tarnation am I going to tell Betty? Bud, you might take just a little interest in all this. $300 doesn't grow on trees, you know. I know, Dad. Any jam around, Mom? I wonder if it would do any good to call the police. Oh, that's probably for me, dear. I'm expecting a call from Mrs. Rodney. Ask her if she's seen a silly-looking French poodle. Hello? Oh, Mr. Fawcett. This is Betty's mother. She didn't expect you back until tomorrow morning. Oh, I see. Uh, yes, yes, we have Pierre... He's fine. Oh, it's perfectly all right. That'll be fine. Goodbye. Who was it, Mother? Did I hear you say that was... Yes, that was Mr. Fawcett. He just arrived home. He's coming over to pick up Pierre. Coming over? What's the matter, Father? Uh, Coming over here tonight? In the dark? (laughs) I imagine he has lights on his car. Yes, but... Excuse me, I'll be right back. Father, you haven't let anything happen to Pierre, have you? Princess, uh, believe me, I I didn't intend to... Oh, I have to tell you, the dog's gone. Oh, Father, how could you? But I'll buy Mr. Fawcett another one, or I'll find him, or I'll... All right, Father, you've suffered enough. I took Pierre out of the garage. What? I was just teaching you a little lesson, not to be so quick to jump to conclusions. Oh, princess, that was a cruel thing to do. Not any more cruel than what you were doing. Thank goodness he isn't lost. Where is he? Up in my room. If Mr. Fawcett's coming over after him, I want to brush him and put a ribbon on his collar. Pierre? Pierre? Where are you, Pierre? What's going on? Father, he's gone! She's still chasing that cream puff. I can't find Pierre. 
Have you seen him, Bud? Not me. I hate to say this, but if you'd left him in the garage where I put him, this would never have happened. <laughs> if you'd left him on the back porch where I put him, it wouldn't have happened either. This family's gone to the dogs. <laughs> oh, who asked you? Nobody. Here I am, facing disgrace, utter disgrace. I'm sorry, Princess, but this shows what happens when you try to take things into your own hands. Well, what's all the wailing about now? The French ambassador has gone underground again. <laughs> Who? Pierre? He's dropped out of sight, Mother, vanished. I had him in my room just a few minutes ago, and now he's gone. How could that be? What was he doing in your room? Well, I was getting even with Father a little for hiding him in the garage, so I had him in my room. Now, suddenly, he's nowhere in the house. What am I going to tell Mr. Fawcett? Let's see. $300, and your allowance is $2 and a half a week. That'll be about... Oh, uh... Father, don't think about it. Pierre has to be in this house somewhere. Well, I hope you both learned your lesson about trying to teach other people lessons. I have Pierre. Huh? You have? He's sound asleep in the broom closet. Oh, thank goodness. Well, let's get him out before Mr. Fawcett comes. I want him to look his best. Oh, I forgot to mention, too, Mr. Fawcett is coming to pick up Pierre, but not until tomorrow morning. Mother. Margaret, that's not very fair. I just wanted to teach you two a little lesson. I think it worked out very well. Well, let's get Pierre out of the broom closet. Well, he's right here. He's right in this... Where'd he go? Oh, no, not again. <laughs> but, but he was right here. I put him here. Well, let's see. Your household budget is... Oh, uh... but Jim... He was here. I know he was here. <laughs> I wonder who's teaching you a little lesson, dear. <laughs> moments later in the white frame house on Maple Street, and still no clue to the missing Pierre. It's a rather tense moment as the Andersons face the awful truth that the precious poodle this time has dropped out of sight once and for all. Like this. Well, I've looked everywhere. Not a trace of him. He's not in the basement. Oh, if only you and Mother had left him alone. If you hadn't brought him home in the first place... Father, if you had left him... I know, the... I know. Give me the five I get the reward. Reward? I got Pierre. Oh, Kathy. Bless you. Bless you. <laughs> All right, kitten, we give up. Where did you find him? It was easy. I found him in the broom closet. <laughs> week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best, starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson. Until then, good night and good luck from the makers of Post 40% Brand Flakes, America's largest selling brand flakes, and Instant Postum, the drink that's entirely caffeine-free. In our cast were Ted Donaldson as Bud, Gene Vanderpile, Rhoda Williams, and Norma Jean Nilsson. <laughs> Father Knows Best was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Paul West and Roswell Rogers. This is Bill Foreman speaking.
This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Do you remember your first dog? Chester, you remember your first dog? Yours was a mutt? Yeah. Yeah, I think everybody remembers their first dog. When they were a kid, that first dog is so special. Mine was a a wire-haired dachshund named Blackie. I'm sure I must have been the one to name him with that great name. He was a little black and a little bit of tan, but I was so young, I really don't remember all the nuances of him. I remember we had to give him back. He was a very destructive dog. My dad uh, used to complain because he would chew up shoes. He got a piece of furniture in the house. I don't remember what it was, but he chewed something on some furniture. But my dad had a brand new 1951 Ford. Uh, He very seldom bought a new car. And that year he bought a new car and we left Blackie in it. We went someplace and it wasn't a cruel thing to do. It was a cool day. He wasn't too hot or anything. But that dog would just was nervous and he chewed up a corner of the front seat on that car. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Broke my dad's heart. Of course, I was thinking more about the dog, but he got sent back to the folks we got him from. It was the family friends, and and they owned an avocado ranch in uh, Escondido, California. So chances are Blackie was a lot happier running around free down there. Also, his mother and I think one or two of his siblings were down there. But Anyway, Blackie was my first dog. That was Father Knows Best. That was originally broadcast on the 11th of September, 1952, name of that episode was Watching the Dog. Robert Young was an interesting guy. He was born in Chicago in 1907, but he grew up in California. He he had some stage experience with the Pasadena Playhouse. He entered films in 1931, and his movie career, for the most part, for the most part, consisted of playing characters who were charming, good-looking, and kind of bland. In fact, his screen image was such that he usually never got the girl. Louis B. Mayer once said that he had no sex appeal, but he did have a work ethic that prepared him for every role that he ever played, and he was very prolific in films. Uh, He played in as many as 11 films a year for over a decade. Uh, It was in 1949 that Young started a radio show called Father Knows Best, and in it he played, as you just heard, Jim Anderson, an average father with average family situations, a role which was really tailor-made for the man. He basically retired from films and starred in the radio program for five years before it finally made the transition to television. And the show became a mainstay of television until 1960. Uh, Young, after that, continued making guest appearances on various TV shows. He worked in some television movies. But in 1969, he starred as Marcus Welby in the TV movie Marcus Welby, M.D., A Matter of Humanities. That resulted in a spin-off television show, Marcus Welby, M.D., which ran from 1969 through 1976. You might recall it also featured James Brolin as the hottie doctor who rode around on a motorcycle. After the series ended, Young, who was uh, by this time in his 70s, went through a period of depression, and he had struggled for many years, apparently, with alcohol. In fact, there's a very sad article. Let me find it here. In the Los Angeles Times, 
And this was from January 20th, 1991. Situate myself here so I can read this. It said, actor Robert Young, who for 10 years served as the ideal TV patriarch in Father Knows Best and went on to star in Marcus Welby, M.D., attempted suicide at his Westlake Village home last week, authorities said Saturday. Lieutenant Bob Barrier of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department said Young, who was 83, ran a hose from the exhaust pipe to his car's interior last Saturday, about 7.45 a.m. Authorities were alerted after Young had called a tow truck to try and start his car. The driver noticed the hose, Barrier said, and contacted authorities. Mr. Young had been drinking, and he admitted that he had tried to end his life. The actor voluntarily admitted himself for a 24-hour observation at Thousand Oaks Charter Hospital, a psychiatric uh, treatment facility, and Barrier did not know how long Young would remain in the hospital. After the incident, Young's wife of more than 40 years, Elizabeth, age 81, told authorities that her husband had asked her to form a pact with him to commit suicide, but she thought he was just rambling. Young has a history of depression and alcoholism and in previous interviews with the Times spoke of feeling guilty about portraying the steadfast, contented Jim Anderson, a father knows best when in real life he was so unhappy. So isn't that sad? He went on to live, though, another, um, well, let me, let me see here. He died in 1998 at the age of 91. So he lived on for another uh, seven, eight years. And I, as I understand it, reading about it, he kind of got help and uh, defeated his alcoholism. He and his wife, Betty, were married in 1933. And they remained married until her death in 1994. And they had four children. So they were married for 61 years before Betty died. So we really never know what the other guy's going through, do we? All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for Happy birthday, happy birthday 
was Adam Lambert with a very haunting song. Well, enough of this. Let's, uh, let's remember we were still in the comedy corner, and we used to love to listen to comedy albums back in the 60s, and perhaps uh, two of the brightest stars during that period were Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Hello. Hello, Arthur. This is your mother. <laughs> Do you remember me? <laughs> hi. Mom, hi. I, I, I was just going to call you. Is, is that a funny Arthur. thing? You know that I had my hand Arthur, on the phone Arthur, you were to supposed call. to call yeah. me last Friday. I, mother, darling, I just didn't have a second, and you I could cut my throat. Second. I was so busy. Arthur, I was, sat I, oh, by I know, that phone I know, I know, all day I Friday. It was just work, work, work. And, and all darling, day Friday night. I, I kept thinking, I got to call Mom. All day Dear, Saturday. Oh, listen, believe and all me. all day Sunday. I, and oh, your father felt, said to me, Phyllis, eat something. You'll faint. Darling. I said, Ma- no, Harry, no. I don't want my mouth to be full when my son called me. Mom. He never called. Mother, I was sending up Vanguard. I didn't have a second. Well, it's always something, isn't it? Okay, honey. You know, no, Arthur, no, I'm sure that all the other scientists there have mothers. You know? And I'm sure that they all find time after their breakfast or before their count-off... Down. ...to pick up a phone and call their mother. Honey, listen, now you have you me on the phone. you know how I worry. Well, I do, that's the point. I read that's in the I... paper how you keep losing them. Mother! <laughs> I don't lose them. Well, I nearly went out of my mind. Okay, honey, I thought, what put... if they're taking it out of his pay? All right. <laughs> even write me a letter. Right, Is that it. so hard? Okay. I'm your mother. Right, mother, look, darling, please, I'll send honey, you mom, to dear, so please don't, just tell me how you That's are, so mom, hard. tell me how you are. How are you? I'm sick. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to hear it, I really am. What's wrong? Nothing. You know what it is, honey. Yeah. It's the yeah. same thing it's always been. Yeah, sure, yeah. It's yeah. my nerves. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And yeah. I went to the doctor, and yeah. uh, he told me yeah. right out. Yeah. He said, yeah. uh, listen, Mrs. White, yeah. Yeah. who yeah. are you fooling? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. You are a yeah. very nervous, yeah. Yeah. very yeah. high-strung yeah. woman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, God knows that's true, yeah. And yeah. you cannot stand yeah. the slightest aggravation. Well, yeah, sure, well, yeah. yeah. I said, doctor, yeah. I know that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know yeah, yeah. that, yeah, too. I said, yeah, but you see, doctor, uh-huh, I, uh, uh-huh. I have this son. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
he is. You know, it's the truth. The boy is not lying. He is. He's very busy. You see, doctor, he's too busy to pick up a phone and call his mother. Honey, listen, Mom, well, dear, Arthur, I want you to tell... Well, when I said Mom... that to him, that man turned pale. Right, dear, Mom... He Mom. said, Mrs. White, Mom. I have been a doctor for 35 years, right. and I've never heard of a son too busy to call his mother. Right, Mom, dear, That's listen... That's just I... what he said to me, Arthur. I know, honey, I want And wanna... that man is a doctor. Uh... <laughs> Mom, mother, please, dear... I, will, will you just tell me, what, what did the doctor say they're going to do with you? Well, I may be in the hospital for a while, so... Uh... The hospital? Yes, the hospital. Well, but what are they going to do? Well, they'll x-ray my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> Mother, why didn't you let me know? All you had to no, honey, do was drop... Well, how you can I brought not it up? aggravate don't, myself? Don't, it's a little tiny... It's nothing, nothing. Forget it. How's your hangnail? All right. <laughs> Mother, yes. please. Just don't worry. Arthur, what does that mean? Honey, what does that mean, don't worry? Nothing, actually. I don't know. I just <laughs> said the first thing that came into my head. It was a, a Arthur, mistake, listen you know. to me. I'm a mother. Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know. I, I should have realized What's that I didn't. What's the use of no, talking, you know? No, I'm sorry. No, no you're very young. Well, I... Someday... Someday, Arthur, Mom. you'll get married. Mom. And you'll have children of your own. Mom. And honey, when you do, I only pray that they make you suffer the way you're making me. <laughs> That's all I pray, Arthur. That's a mother's prayer. Okay, Mom, thanks for calling. You're very sarcastic. Mother, I'm doing my best now. You called me on the telephone. I right, tried right, to explain right, to you. Don't hit me. I'm sorry. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that I bothered you. And look, I hope I didn't make you feel bad. Are you kidding? I feel awful. Oh, honey, if I could believe that, I'd be the happiest mother in the world. Oh, mother, it's true. What do you think? I feel crummy. Arthur, honey... Why don't you call me, sweetheart? Look, you know, Arthur, I know that I nag you, you know? I mean, listen, I'm a nagging mother. What are you going to do? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Honey, you know, you're my baby. And Arthur, you're the only baby I've got. And honey, no matter how old you get, when you get to be 80 years old, you're gonna be my baby, you know? And, and when you don't call me, sweetheart, I, I can't help it. I worry. So is that so hard to pick up a phone and call your mommy? Please, baby, please. Yeah, well, I will, I promise. <laughs> you say it and then no, you really, I really promise. Will, I promise. Well, then, you make your mommy so well, happy. if mommy's happy, then he's happy. <laughs> okay, mommy. And mommy wants to wish you lots of luck with your rocket. Thank you, mommy. <laughs> and remember, Dad, I love you. I love you too, mommy. Goodbye, baby. Goodbye, mommy. Nani, nani, nani.
Mike Nichols and Elaine May. I have a whole album of some of their most popular routines. They were really, really good. you know what that music means. That familiar tune means it's time for us to travel back to 1874. We're out on the Great American Prairie. The location is Dodge City, Kansas. We're walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to meet up with Doc and Chester and Kitty and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. Have a good story tonight. How important is it to you to keep your word? Well, Doc is faced with a real moral dilemma. And the name of this episode is Word of Honor. It was first broadcast on January 10th, 1953. Now, Gunsmoke occasionally, or more than occasionally, use some of the earlier scripts in later episodes. Instead of actually repeating an episode or doing a replay of an episode, they would record it again, oftentimes with different uh, different stars uh, in the supporting roles. The reason I bring this up is in going over the history on Boomer Boulevard, I don't think this episode's ever been played, and it's a good one. They also used this script on the television program, and if you have cable TV and you have a channel that uh, plays the old Gunsmoke TV episodes, This one was first broadcast on October 1st, 1955 on TV. Here it comes. This is Gunsmoke from January the 10th, 1953. The name of this episode is Word of Honor.
around Dodge City and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Not up there, Mr. Dillon. He's just plain vanished. There's no note anywhere. You sure of that, Chester? Nothing, sir. I looked again all over. Well, it's two days now. This isn't like Doc. Well, I still think he's just gone off on an emergency. Out in the country somewhere. Maybe, but he's always left word before. Hmm. Well, what do we do, Mr. Dillon? I don't know. Might start asking people, Chester. Uh, try the saloons and the store and maybe... Maybe the depot, huh? All right, Mr. Dillon, I'll go right now. All right. Well, well, I do declare. What? Riding right up Front Street as big as life. Why, that old rascal getting us all worried about him. For land's sake, you sure are a sight for sore eyes, Doc. Where in the world have you been at, anyway? Yeah. Hello, Chester. Matt. Hey, you had us worried, Doc. That's so? You've been gone two days. I know. Next time we word, Doc. I will. I surely will. If I can. Well, it'd sure save us a lot now, of fretting. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What do you mean, Doc, if you can? Just that. If they let me, I'll leave word. Come on inside, Doc. Well, all right, I'm curious, Doc. You want to tell me about it? I can tell you part of it, least important part. I made a promise about the rest. You know how it is, Matt. No, but you tell me. Well, the other night, Wednesday it was, I was peacefully asleep on my couch when a couple of riders tromped right into my office. They said a man was hurt somewhere out past Fort Dodge. So naturally, I got up and I went along with them. Well, then why didn't you leave a note and say so? They didn't tell me exactly where we was going, Chester. But they sure told me not to leave any note. They told you what? Let him talk, Chester. Now, of course, I figured then it must have been a shooting, but my job's to take care of everybody. Sinner and saved alike. And so, when finally we got to this place the next day... What place? <sighs> that's part of what I promised not to tell, Chester. But like I was saying, there was a young man there who'd got himself shot in the back. The bullet lodged right in his spine. And I dug it out, and I did all I could for him. And then I just sat there for quite a spell. And then I put my things away. And I walked out into the other room. Well, Doc, how is it? I did what I could... 
What do you mean? He's dead. The shock of extracting that bullet was too much for him. It's a bad place to spine him. You killed him, huh, Doc? No. No, I didn't kill him. He's dead, ain't he? Look, mister, doctors don't kill people. Murderers Watch do. your mouth, Doc. That boy wouldn't have lived more than a couple of days with that bullet where it was. And whoever put it there murdered him. You want me to shut him up? Not yet. Doc, tell me something. You know that boy in there? I do. Sure. And the three of us here, you know any of us? Uh, him. I've seen him around somewhere. Dodge, I guess. Well, that settles it. He ain't walking out of here. Shut up. Know his name, Doc? No. No, I don't. Of course, it might come to me. Let me think now. now you I... don't understand, Doc. He wants to kill you already. Now you're trying to remember his name. That's just going to make it worse. You can't kill a doctor for following his oath? Oh, no. I shot that boy when he tried to get away, and I shoot you just as Don't easy. be a fool. I'm a doctor. And since there's nothing more I can do here, I got to be available to other patients. I've been away too long. No, what expired. are we arguing about? The sooner we shoot him, the better. What kind of a man are you, anyways? Don't you know I'm the only doctor within a hundred miles of Dodge? Right now, it's one too many. Now, wait a minute. I'm kind of thinking the doc's right. He ain't like an ordinary man. But doctors, well, it's almost like he ain't quite human somehow. He's human enough to tell what he knows that hard-headed marshal they got in Dodge. And we'll have him on our tail, we'll never get our 20,000. Uh-uh. Well, I figure it's us or the doc. I'm not interested in what you figure, mister. Right this minute, there may be some woman having a baby and needing me real bad. There may be several folk needing me for help. He's right. We can't kill him. I can't. You'll do what I say and nothing else, here. Oh. Doc, listen to me. If I let you go, will you promise not to tell about anybody you recognized here? And if I don't? Then doctor or no doctor, I'll kill you myself. Yeah, I suppose you would. All right, I'm here as a doctor and nothing else. I promise. Word of honor, Doc? That's my word of honor. Okay, get out. One other thing, Doc. What? You break your word, you tell anybody where this place is or who you saw here, and we'll get to you. We'll kill you no matter where you try to hide. I gave you my word, didn't I? Sure, but don't forget what I said anyway. Don't forget for one minute. We'll kill you or die trying. That's quite a story, Doc. And you played it right smart, if you ask me. Who were they, Doc? Well, tell us. Well, I only recognized one of them, Chester. Besides the man they'd shot. So you said... Uh, have you thought of his name no, yet? No, Chester, you don't understand. I, I gave him a word I wouldn't tell. Yes, but that was just so as you could get away. Well, they'd have shot me for sure otherwise, but still I gave my word. It don't matter how or why. But, Doc, they're just a bunch of killers. I know. Leave him alone, Chester. But, Mr. Dillon... Yes, sir. Matt. Yeah, Doc. Wouldn't you do the same if you were in my boots... That'd be a hard choice, Doc, but... 
Yeah, I suppose I would. Why any man would? Leastwise, any man of honor would. I guess I wasn't really thinking about it that way. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to get some sleep. Uh, uh, Matt, that was a good boy they murdered. I, uh, I hope they hang for it. Oh, Dad blasted him. How are we ever going to find him, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. We don't even know who they killed. It's funny we haven't heard about it. Maybe nobody's missed him yet. Just think. Doc could lead us straight to him right now. Well, it isn't making the Doc happy, Chester. No, sir, it sure isn't. I'm going over to the Texas Trail, Chester. I'll be back later. Yes, sir. Hey, Sam, bring me over a bottle and a glass, will you? Hello, Matt. Oh, hi, Kitty. You want some help for that bottle? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm only going to have one. You can finish it. Sit down. Oh, my reputation's bad enough without my trying to get around carrying a bottle of whis- whiskey in me. <laughs> there you be. Oh, thank you, Sam. There you are, Kitty. Well, here's the luck. Yeah, I could use some. Oh, you didn't come here to drink a bottle of rye, Matt. What's on your mind? Well, Kitty, I was sort of wondering if uh, maybe you'd heard any talk about uh, anybody being missing lately. Missing? Who? Well, that's that's just the point. I I, I don't know who. (laughs) Well, you're sure not on much of a trail, are you, Matt? Well, a man was shot and he's dead. And I don't know who he was or who did it or where. All I know is that it happened. Well, I'll be darned. Well, Matt, I don't know a thing I've heard that it helped. I'm sorry. Oh, it was just a chance. You know, it's not often a man gets shot around here without everybody knowing about it. <laughs> well, I'm glad for that much anyway. <laughs> well, thanks, Kitty. Well, good luck, Matt. Yeah. Take it easy with that bottle. Yeah. I'll save it for you. So long. See you, Matt. Doc's been asleep for six straight hours, Mr. Dillon. He sure must have been tired. <sighs> yeah. Uh, here, Chester, take these letters down to the depot for me, will you? They gotta be in Washington next week. Santa Fe pulls out in an hour, sir. I'll put them right in the mail car. Marshal? Why, Jake Worth, why, you haven't come into Dodge in the last six months that I know of. I'm here now, Marshal. Oh? Uh, Trouble, Jake? I'd call it that. Well? You know that cottonwood, the big one down at Brandy Bend? Yeah. 
There's a hole cut down by the roots at the north side of it. I put a sack in that hole this morning. It's got $20,000 in it. That's a lot of money, Jake, even for you. It isn't if Hank gets back all right. Hank? That's your youngest boy, isn't it, Jake? Yeah, 18 last month. Yeah. And that's ransom money. Your boy's been kidnapped, huh? He didn't show up the other night, Marshal. Next morning, I found a note tacked on the corral. Said to leave the money or they'd kill him. Well, come on, Jake. We'll try to get there before they pick up the money. No, Marshal, I won't take any chances. They'd shoot him sure if we did that. Well, you should have told me before you left the money. You should have come here first, you know. You didn't hear what I said, Marshal. I won't take the chance. All I want now is for you to watch for anybody who turns up rich around here. Jake, I want you to listen to me. Now you I'm... listen to me, Marshal. Nobody's going to do a thing till Hank's back safe on the ranch. Not one dang thing. Jake, if they killed Hank, you'd want him hung, wouldn't you? I'll hang him myself if it comes to that. I'll hunt him down like wolves. All right, then let's go. Let's get on to Brandy Ben and wait for him. No. I already told you no. Hank's dead, Jake. They already shot him. And he's dead. What are you talking about? Where is he? I don't know. And how come you know he's dead? I I, I can't tell you. Marshal, I've had about enough of this. We're wasting time here. Come on, Jake. I'll tell you what I can on the way to the river. You better by heaven or one of us ain't never gonna get to the river. Jake Worth was known as a hard, hot-tempered man, but he was straight as they come. He'd made one fortune in Texas cattle and another in buffalo hides, and now all he wanted was his ranch and his three sons to work it with him. The Worths were good men. They didn't cause any trouble, and they worked hard. It was hard to tell Jake, but without mentioning Doc, I said what I could. And when we reached the Arkansas, we hid our horses in the clump of bush and worked our way on foot up to the big cottonwood and I stood up and walked out into the open what are you doing Marshal you gone crazy come on Jake no use to hide now oh that's him there isn't it that's Hank I'm afraid so Jake They killed him. They killed him all right. He was a good boy. Had his whole life to live yet. Why did they do it? I gave him the money. Why did they do it? I'm sorry, Jake. Marshal, I've been kind of confused by all this. I swallowed your story on the way down here. But I want the truth now. Every bit of it. That's all I know, Jake. Hank tried to break and one of them shot him. But we'll get him. I'll take care of myself as soon as you tell me who they are. I don't know who they are. Don't lie to me, Marshal. You know a lot you're not telling me. What's going on with you anyway? I've told you all I can, Jake. That's my boy lying there, Marshal. He's been murdered. And if I didn't know you so well, I'd begin to think maybe you had something to do with now, it Now, just yourself. a minute, Jake. I know you're then, upset. Then but... why don't you tell me? 
Because the man who told me about it had to promise not to name anybody, that's why. What man? Who is he? I'll, I'll get it out of him if, if I have to cut it out. Yeah, I know. That's why I can't tell you who he is. What kind of a lawman are you, anyway? I've told you all I can, Jake. No. No, you haven't. Marshal, I don't believe your story about nobody. Promise nothing. You know who done it. And you're going to tell me or don't I'm... Don't try it, Jake. You can't kill me, and you know it. Nope. I can't. Me and my boys can. And I'm giving you 24 hours to name those men, and then we're coming to Dodge. There'll be blood spilt, Marshal. Jake, I give you my word, I don't know who did it. I don't believe you. I'll help you take your boy home now. Oh, no. Go on back to Dodge. I'll manage here. You're making a bad mistake, Jake. 24 hours, Marshal. I'll be there. We'll find you wherever you'll be. Jake, I want... So long, Jake. There was no use arguing with him. The man's grief had destroyed his reason. And the worst of it was, I knew his sons would do whatever Jake told them to do. Unless I could stop it somehow, I'd have to shoot it out with three good and perfectly innocent men. For no reason at all. I thought about it all the way back to Dodge, and by the time I got there, I had an idea. I went up to Doc's and talked it over with him. Well, all right, Matt. Uh, I'll do whatever I can. It might not work, Doc, and you'll be exposing yourself to a lot of danger. Have you thought about that? I have. I've also been thinking about the men who killed Hank with. Well, we could wait till they start spending their money or one of them gets drunk and maybe talks too much somewhere. We could. But meantime, you and the worst will have a gunfight. Oh, man, it'd be a terrible thing to let happen. All right, then, Doc, let's go. I want to get to the ranch before dark. Yeah, maybe Jake's cooled off by now. Enough not to start shooting on sight, anyway. Uh, we'll soon find out. Come on. You know, Matt, I haven't been out here since Mrs. Worth died. Oh, that must be four or five years ago. Well, the place sure has changed, hasn't it? Yeah. I don't see anybody around, do you? Maybe they saw us first. Maybe they're hit out. I hope not. See, Matt, I got an idea. Why don't you take your gun off and hang it around your saddle horn? Then they'll know you come peaceable. I can't take a chance like that, Doc. Not with Jake and his state. But I won't shoot unless I have to. He who lives by the sword. Look, Doc, I'm doing everything I can to avoid this thing. But I'll kill all three of them if I have to. All right, Matt, I understand. That's far enough, Marshal. Watch him, boys. If he makes a move, shoot. Yes, sir. 
Jake, I came here to stop a shooting, not to start one. You can stop it, Marshal. Just tell me who killed my son. If I knew I'd be on his trail, Jake. I'm not sure of that at all. What's Doc doing here? Tell him, Doc. Um, I took the bullet out of Hank. He died soon after. What? That's right, Jake. Now come down here where we can talk like friends and I'll explain it to you. Stay where you are, boys. All right, Doc, let's hear it. Well, they... They got me out of bed, Jake, and they led me out into the country. Hank had been shot in the back, and I extracted the bullet, but it was no use. He'd have died anyway. There were three men there, and I recognized one of them. Who was he? Well, I had to promise I wouldn't tell, Jake, or they'd have killed me. That don't matter now. Now, think about it a minute, Jake. Doc gave him his word, and you're asking him to break it. Now, think about it for a minute. I'm thinking. Thinking about my boy, too. Hank's dead. You can't help him now. Shot in the back. And the coward who did it's running free. You want to help get him, Jake? Don't ask fool questions, Marshal. Of course I want to get him. Then listen to me. Those men told Doc if he talked, they'd kill him. Yeah, and they meant it, too. All right, so I got an idea now, Jake. We'll spread it around that Doc has identified the killer. The news will reach him soon enough. In the meantime, I'm going to lay low. And I'll have Chester tell everybody that I've ridden out after them. Go on. Then we'll just wait. One or two or maybe all three of them will come into Dodge to kill Doc some night soon. You still might get away. And I'll deputize you and your boys right now and you can wait for them with us. You'll have to stay hidden like me, of course. Uh, We won't mind that. Not if we get a chance at them, we won't. All right, good. Funny thing, though. What? Man like Doc here, rather than break his word, he'll make himself a target for those killers. Yeah. Look, Jake, Doc and I are going to go back to Dodge now. I'll see that the story gets started, and in a day or two, you and your boys can ride in. But separately, though. Otherwise, it might cause talk. I understand. And come straight to Doc's. We'll get there. next few days, Doc never left his office. I figured that'd make him look scared and draw the killers right into our trap. The rest of us sat around in his back room and waited. Chester kept us supplied with food and coffee, but we began to get pretty restless cooped up like that. By the fifth night, we were being real careful with one another and over-polite. But on the sixth night, about midnight, we got our game. Mr. Dillon? I think it's them. Where? They just rode up Front Street, three of them. They're tying up outside right now. They acted too deliberate-like for ordinary riders, so I run up the back way to tell you. Doc, come on in. Uh, what do you want me to do, Matt? Take cover in here and stay out of sight. Yeah, whatever you say, Matt. Let's go downstairs and meet them, Marshal. No, we might just scatter them that way. Hmm. Now listen. One of them will probably stand guard on the street while the other two come up here to get Doc. Chester, you and the two boys go down the back way. Jake and I'll wait in the Doc's office. But don't jump that man while we go into action up here. Do you understand? I got it, sir. All right, then move fast. Come on, Jake. Now what? Well, we'll just wait here in the dark. Good. 
I'll fix Doc's blanket on the couch here so they'll think he's in it. They're on the stairs now. All right, get back in the corner, Jaker. We'll be shooting each other. All right. Wake up, you lying dog. I'll let you shoot him and get out of here. What? Wait. He ain't here. What? Get your hands up. You're under arrest, both of you. It's a trap! You all right, Jake? I got one of them. I'm all right. Doc? Doc, you can come on out now. Uh, yeah, well, all right, man. They're dead. Light the lamp, will you, Doc? Uh, all right, yes, you bet, man. Uh, light the lamp. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, come in, Chester. Well, we got him, Mr. Dillon. He tried to get away when he heard you up here, but he ran smack into one of the Worth boys. He's dead. Yeah. Well, I don't know either one of these men. Doc, you can tell us now. Is one of these the man you recognize? Uh, let me see here. This one here. I remembered later I treated him for a broken nose sometime back. I never did know his name, though. He, he came up on the, uh, up the trail with a herd, I think. It don't matter now, as long as they're all dead. <laughs> oh, well. <clears throat> Bring the other bodies up, uh, Chester. I'll do the autopsies quick, and I'll get them out of here. <laughs> it's about time I got something out of all this. Okay, Doc. I'll fetch him. Well, Jake, uh... I'm satisfied, Marshal. Me and the boys will be getting back to the ranch now. Sure. Marshal, I... Yeah? I doubted you. I'm sorry for that. Forget it, Jake. No. No, it's best I remember. Man shouldn't make mistakes like that. Well, there was no harm done. The way it worked out. Uh, I'll buy you a drink before we leave, Marshal. <laughs> I think I'd like that, Jake. Come on, let's go. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner with Lawrence Dobkin and Harry Bartell. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. This is Roy Rowan speaking over the CBS Radio Network.
From uh, January the 10th, 1953, that was Gunsmoke. name of that episode was Word of Honor. That was pretty early in the run, and the character of Doc was still being developed. And this was sort of a transitional episode, at least in my opinion. At the end, Doc was still kind of ghoulish. You know, he was talking about, well, at least I get something out of this. You know, I'll get the autopsy piece. But that was what you heard a lot of from Doc in the first year in 52. But they were developing the character, and we saw what a man of honor that Doc was, that he would not go against his word. And, of course, that character was developed more in the ghoulish side of Doc, the Charles Adams side. Remember, Doc was named uh, kind of jokingly after uh, the cartoonist Charles Adams, who used to do the Adams family and those ghoulish, ghoulish cartoons. But Doc didn't remain that way. Another great thing about that episode was uh, we see how well Gunsmoke would use sound effects and silence to create suspense and tension. That one scene where they're waiting in the doctor's office for the guys to come up the stairway, that was 19 seconds of just almost complete silence, just a little bit of conversation, a couple footsteps, and yet that was the tensest part of the show. Just an outstanding show, Gunsmoke. And of course, as always, we play an episode of Gunsmoke every week. Folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. We'll be back in uh, two weeks with an all-new show, but next week we'll have the archive show, so don't uh, don't worry about it. We'll be here. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Even though it's a little hot here, we had a nice vacation. We're, we're raring to go, and we have a whole lot of shows that we have lined up. All right, this is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and... I'm so glad you met me. Stay cool, everybody.